0: I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Carneson. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode features a very special guest. I'm delighted to have my geriatrics colleague, Dr. Rebecca Sudore, associate professor at UCSF, here to talk with me about a very important topic which is making advanced care planning easier and more helpful. Dr. Sudori is one of the country's foremost experts on helping older adults address advanced directives, end of life wishes, and other aspects of advanced care planning. She also has a special interest in health literacy and informed medical decision making. And she's the creator of one of my favorite online resources for older adults, the prepareforyourcare.org website and also of a wonderful, easy-to-read advanced directive form that I personally have been using with my own patients ever since I came across it, which I think was at the end of my residency. These resources that she's helped create are not only incredibly useful, but they've also been carefully developed and studied in clinical trials published by Dr. Sidori and her colleagues. So over the years, I've so often wished that more people knew about the prepareforyourcare.org website especially since Dr. Sudori's team has made some really terrific additions and improvements to the site over the past year. So I'm just delighted to have her here today to talk to us about PREPARE, how it might help you or someone you know, and also about her latest research on how to help older adults address advanced care planning. Rebecca, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Leslie. I love this podcast and I love your website and I'm really honored to be here.
0: Oh, wow. That's so nice because I consider you one of my original inspirations for the audience. Rebecca Sudore did a residency, the same residency that I did, but was a few years ahead of me. And so when I was in clinic, she would be there recruiting older adults to study advanced care planning. And I thought, wow, what this woman is doing is amazing. And so I followed her into geriatrics and here we now both are in geriatrics. So I would love for you to start by telling us maybe a little bit more about your background and how did you become interested in advanced care planning and in this, this work?
1: Yeah, well, I think as you had said in the introduction, I had been doing work in health literacy and really what that means is translating some of the crazy medical and legal language that we use in the medical world into language that most of all of us can understand And thinking about how we could make that easier for folks, Um, writing things in plain language, that sort of thing. And, you know, I had been working on things such as a common cold and how do you take your medicines. And then I really got interested in informed consent those papers that often get sort of slid under, you know, people's noses and, and people are asked to sign them before a surgery or coming into the hospital. And a lot of those forms are written in sort of scary legal language. It's hard to know to make an informed decision about whether or not you want that particular um, treatment or procedure. Right. And I'll just mention, we both did
0: our residency at what was then San Francisco General Hospital, where we had lots of
1: patients who came from a different cultural background, right? Right. Different cultural backgrounds. Maybe English wasn't their first language. A lot of these forms weren't in other languages. And, you know, so that's sort of where I came to uh, sort of the health literacy aspect. And again, creating easy to understand materials so patients could make decisions. And then when I was on the ethics committee at San Francisco General, we were talking about how so many patients would come to the hospital, they would end up in the ICU. No one knew if they had family, no one knew what their wishes were for medical care. And there was sort of this sense of moral distress, I would say, amongst the clinicians because none of us knew if we were really providing the care that people really wanted. And so sort of in the ethics group, we were talking why is this happening and why aren't our patients completing advanced directives? Why don't we know their wishes? And there's many reasons for that. But one of the reasons that I sort of raised my hand and said, well, let's look at the advanced directive that we're actually using. And the form that that was being used at San Francisco General had teeny tiny font size that was written with very scary legal language that didn't make sense to most people. And I thought, well, this seems like something that might be low hanging fruit to change. Right, yeah. There's no no reason why we have to have sort of arcane legal language. And so that's what started that trajectory. And what I love about
0: that, too, is that it's, you know, it's not just also about people maybe being of a different cultural background, but those those forms were in legalese that were hard for, I mean, I always found that even for me, you know, college educated and with an advanced degree, that they're harder to decipher. And of course, not not everybody has an advanced degree. Not everybody had a chance to go to college. Right. And for something so important, why is it in this dense legally language that scares off just about everyone other than an attorney.
1: That's just great that you uh,
0: caught on to that. So what happened after that?
1: We worked actually with patients and family members and caregivers and nurses, social workers and lawyers, patient advocates, people from the community all sort of came together to sort of put our heads together to figure out how could we translate this sort of crazy legal language That, by the way, every state in the U.S. has its own laws about advanced care planning and advanced directive, Mm. and there are certain things that have to be on the forms, but that doesn't mean, you know, in most states, you can sort of still say it in a way that makes sense using plain language, and so we really worked with the community to try to come up with forms that were not scary, that were easy to read, easy to understand, and easy to fill out. Mm. And so how long did that take? That took, um, well, I thought it was going to take a couple of months (laughs) and um, it actually took a couple of years, you know, to get, I think sometimes people think that when you take difficult legal or medical language and you translate it into plain language, that that's an easy process, but it actually can be quite hard, especially if you're trying to make sure that you're getting the information sort of across Um, and we sort of target what we call the fifth grade reading level. And so trying to get all the information in there at the fifth grade reading level can sometimes be hard. And we wanted to make sure that the lawyers signed on and the hospital signed on and that all of our stakeholders were happy with it. And so it just, it took a while. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. But you eventually succeeded. I mean, I remember it was, it was there years ago and I've been downloading it from the internet ever since. Have you since now moved now to your prepareforyourcare.org website. But tell us a little bit more about this advanced directive, because one of the things that I loved about it when I first saw it was not only was the language much more clear, but I felt like it included some really useful questions for people to think about that weren't included in the usual advanced directive. So tell us about that. And maybe we should actually start by just Reviewing for the audience, what is an advanced directive?
1: Yes. Well, maybe we can take even a step further back. Yeah. And maybe talk about advanced care planning in sure. general. Yeah. So, you know, when we think about advanced care planning, you know, what is that? And it's really a process, it's all about talking to family and friends and your medical providers about what is important to you so that you really can have a voice in your health care and get the medical care that's right for you now and in the future. And I think one of the things about the advanced care planning process is that it really is designed to also help prepare family and friends in case they ever need you know to advocate for someone or make medical decisions for somebody else. And that's not an exceptional situation, right? It's not actually. Studies show that up to three-fourths or like 75% of people at some point in their lives may need somebody else to help make medical decisions because either they are too sick to make their own decisions or people, you know, are at near the end of their life or for other reasons. And Yeah, so, right. Um, I know, find that people
0: often envision the sort of like end of life situation where they're on life support in the intensive care unit and what is their family going to do? And, and that comes up and you referred to that earlier, but there are just especially for older adults, it's fairly common for them to be pretty sick in the hospital and,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and they're too sort of sick and confused to make their medical decisions,
1: right? Right. And I, and I think that's a great point too, because I think, you know, when we think about the advanced directive, and we'll talk a little bit more about the PREPARE website, but all of our materials really were created with and for the people that we want to use them. And I think, just as you were saying, you know, most advanced directives, Sort of have this checkbox approach that says, you know, do you want to be resuscitated and, you know, have CPR or be on a breathing machine? Yes and no at the very end of life. And that's really, and for many advanced directives, that's really the only questions. But we heard from patients and their families, like, we're making medical decisions about a whole range of things. Mm -hmm. You know, my, you know, mother has dementia and she's being admitted for the fifth time for pneumonia, right? Do we keep doing antibiotics? Do we not? Or my loved one, I'm having a hard time taking care of them. And is it time for me to think about getting extra help in the home or a nursing home or something like that? And a lot of these transitions, whether it be your own medical care in terms of, is this medication right for me today? Or is this the type of transition because of where I am in, in my illness trajectory that makes sense, such as chemotherapy or other treatments? A lot of the forms don't really address somebody's overall sort of values and goals, the things that bring quality of life to them, how they want to live, not just about these checkbox approaches to specific treatments. Right, right. Yeah.
0: So it's really uh, much broader than I think people often think it is, which is just a kind of directive of what to do if you're deathly ill and about to die.
1: Well, and I think the other thing too, is that hospitals and healthcare systems have really pushed the advanced directive form, which is very important. And clearly you use it and I use it, and I think patients should use it. But one of the reasons they've pushed that is that it's easy to measure. Is it in the chart or is it not in the chart? But I can tell you at the bedside, you know, I, I tell the story and it's really true. I'm a geriatrician, but I'm also a palliative care physician. So that's mm-hmm. someone who actually helps support people who have serious illness um, at any age or any stage of their health. But in, in doing that, I will say be at an ICU family meeting and you have family members you know, or a family who somebody has completed an advanced directive, but they never talked about it with their family and friends. They never Mm. shared it with anyone. And the people that I'm looking at in the ICU, the family members are looking at me like a deer in headlights. They have no idea what that person would have wanted because those fundamental conversations didn't happen. And then you can have another family where there's no documentation, but they can say, you know, this is really hard, but we've been talking about this openly for the past five years. And as hard as this is, I really know what my loved one wants. And so I think when we think about advanced care planning, we often just think about advanced directives, but there's all this other piece to it, which includes sort of knowing what's important to you and being able to share that with your loved ones and and the clinicians who will be taking care of you.
0: Right. So it's not just, you know, having legally signed a form. It's these conversations and this this process and, and also kind of repeating it because you must hear this also too, but I'll ask people about their advanced care planning And they'll say, oh, I I did that with the lawyer 20 years ago. And to them, it's it's a done thing. And I think, well, well, first of all, I don't know that the lawyer was in the best position to advise you about the considerations when you're providing guidance for your medical decisions later, but also that, you know, that was then. This has to, things evolve, even if you had a conversation with your family 20 years ago.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, right. things, and-
0: things may have changed. Would you mind briefly just summarizing in that case the relationship between the term advanced directive and advanced care planning?
1: Yeah. So like I said, be the, the advanced care planning process is all about talking with family, friends, and medical providers about what's important to people so they have a voice in their health care and can get the medical care that's right for them. And that includes things like thinking about what is important in in life, sharing them with other people. And then it could also include, and often does include, putting those wishes into a legal document, which is an advanced directive. So an advanced directive is a legal form that would allow people to put their wishes in writing so they can write down, for example... Uh, you know, what is important to them or the type of medical care that they might want. And as you say, in our advanced directive, it also lets you write down the things that bring your life meaning and quality of life. Um, It also allows you to write down the name of a person and alternate people who can help make medical decisions for you if for some reason you can't make your own medical decisions. So this is kind of, you know, it's, it's your backup.
0: Right. And that's uh, sometimes referred to as a durable power of attorney for healthcare, exactly. or a surrogate decision maker for health care or a proxy. Exactly. Right. Great. So now tell us about the PREPARE program. First of all, what it is and just what led you to create it? Because I remember when you first came out with it, I thought, wow, that's amazing. That's fantastic. <laughs> And I don't know that anyone had done anything quite uh, like it that I'd come across. So tell us about PREPARE the program.
1: So PREPARE is an online advanced care planning program. It's in English and Spanish. And it was designed really to help people learn about and also prepare for medical decision making. So it's written as just like the advanced directive, it's written at a fifth grade reading level. And just like the advanced directive, it was also developed with input from patients and caregivers. It's a five step program that features video stories. That's really kind of the cornerstone are these video stories that guide people in exploring their wishes and learning how to discuss them with family members and friends. And it was really designed so people can choose which steps are right for them. They could do all five steps or just one step at a time. And each step really only takes about 10 minutes and Along with the program, so if you go to the website, prepareforcare.org, that's where you'll also see the easy-to-read advanced directives, which we now have that are legally binding in all 50 states in English and Spanish. There are question guides, there are pamphlets that can be downloaded, and we can talk more later, but there's actually a movie version. If people are interested in, say, having friends over, to have a movie over dinner, to talk about advanced care planning. We use these movies in uh, group medical visits and in churches and senior centers. Um, but all of that is on the website. Right. So tell us a little bit more about why you felt it was necessary
0: to to develop this beyond the easy-to-read advanced directive, which already provided so much more I felt clarity and, and examples. I'm actually looking at the easy-to-read advanced directive right now, and part one says choose your medical decision maker. They can make healthcare decisions for you if you're not able to make them yourself, and it gives some uh, suggestions on what makes somebody a good medical decision maker and, and tells you what will happen if you don't choose one and the kinds of things your medical decision maker might choose on your behalf, the kinds of decisions they might make, and it sort of spells out some of them. So you had already created this form that just had had all this uh, additional detail and also includes another section part 2 where you can describe some of the things that matter most in your life and mm-hmm. what you know means quality of life for you. So after having all this, what led you to feel that you still that more was needed?
1: Yeah, you know, we continued to do research so even though we complete you know completed the advanced directive, we actually did a randomized trial of the advanced directive at San Francisco General and show that it worked. And to be honest, I thought, oh, okay, this is great. I think maybe we've solved the problem of advanced care planning and really all we need are these easy to read forms. But you know, we continue to do research and talk to patients and their family members who had been through making having to make major medical decisions for themselves or others we actually talked to 70 people who were in that situation they either had to make sort of a life-threatening decision about themselves or someone else and you know they all said the form is really important and it was really helpful our form or different advanced directive forms but again it was this idea that not only were they struggling with end-of-life decisions but sort of all the other decisions that come along with a hospital stay or somebody being seriously ill. And I think, you know, the other thing that we heard is that people really struggled with how to do these things. So how do you even identify what your values and preferences are? And how do you actually communicate that to other people? They had said that they wished that they had sort of somebody showing them or telling them how to do it. And and I think about this as a geriatrician when I'm in my office, It's sort of a tall order to tell somebody in an exam room, hey, you go home, you choose the right surrogate decision maker for yourself, and you tell them all about your wishes, and then come back and see me, Mm -hmm. and that's hard to do. So how do you choose the right person, and how do you even bring it up, and how do you have that conversation? So the form is the static thing that has really good information in it, and it's really helpful, but then how do, you, how do you actually have these conversations? And so we heard that people actually wanted help with actual skills to help prepare them to identify what was most important and communicate those wishes to others. And then once you know what's important, how do you actually make an informed medical decision based on your values and goals? And so to do this, they felt like they really needed more than a static form, but wanted some how-to videos about how people could actually do these things. And so from those interviews and focus groups with seventy people, we actually pulled their real life experiences and used them in these video stories to help, you know, show people how they could actually do these things on their own.
0: Right. I just thought that was such an amazing insight to get. And it came from you doing the research, right? From not just saying, Oh, this is this is helpful and moving on, but from from sort of the seeing yeah. how people were working with it, this insight that the form is in a way, I guess supposed to mean a kind of summary <laughs> of, mm-hmm. of the conversations you've had and what you've figured out about yourself and what you think you want for the future, but that people still need to first have those conversations and that they were unsure of how to go about it. And so you created a program that kind of breaks it down into little steps and examples that they can follow.
1: Right. And to your point, I always say advanced directive is only as good as the conversations that are around that, either conversations with your medical provider or your family and friends. And so I think more than even completing the form, what we hope that PREPARE does is it helps people start these conversations with each other.
0: Right. Yeah. And originally when you created the PREPARE for Your Care website, there were the advanced directives were not there, actually, I remember.
1: Right. Yeah, and, you know, I have to say some of that was because, you know, we write grants to help keep our, you know, small operation going, which is through the University of California, San Francisco, and we provide all of our materials for free to people. And so, you know, we have to wait for the next grant, always, you know, for the next step. And so I think initially we made the decision not to include the advanced directives because we really wanted to spark those conversations and then waited till we got additional funding in the next iteration of prepare, which is coming soon, they'll be sort of seamlessly integrated a little bit more for people who are ready to move to that next step.
0: Well, I noticed that I think it's just in the past year, you've not only added the easy to read advanced directives to the prepare website, but you now have them for all 50
1: states, which just blew me away when I saw it. This, so that's an example of one of the things that we've wanted to do for so long because we've had the easy-to-read advanced directives in California for close to 15 years now um, in several different languages, 10 different languages actually, and we were getting requests from many different states that they wanted, you know, easy-to-read advanced directives for their state, but as I said, every state has its own laws. So it wasn't, you know, you couldn't just use the California form say in New York or Michigan and those kinds of things, you have to actually figure out the law and then figure out how to change the forms. And so we've been wanting to do it forever and just didn't have the funding. And then we were lucky enough to get funding from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. And we worked with our colleagues um, at UC Hastings School of Law um, to review all of the state's laws about advanced directives and then update them. So just in April of this last year, we were so excited to make those again available for free to people to download straight from the prepare website.
0: Yeah, well, they are great. I'm definitely going to put a link to them on um, the show notes. And I want to encourage people to take a look because, because even though your easy to read advanced directive has been available now in California for um, over 10 years. I mean, what year did you have it come out? The Prepare or the Advanced Directive? The Advanced Directive, the first yes. one that you did, the easy-to-read Advanced Directive for California. What year was that?
1: Yeah, I think that was 2005.
0: Yeah, that sounds about right. So that mm-hmm. was, you know, when I was in my residency. So I'm surprised by how I still, I rarely see it when I meet a new patient. And when I look through their work and what I see the hospitals giving out, I feel like it's still not as frequent as I wish it were.
1: Do you have any thoughts about, about that? Yeah. So anybody who's listening here, tell all your friends. (laughs) You know, I think one of the things, you know, because we're not a business and this is, like I said, our operation is run through philanthropy and getting grant funds. Um, You know, we haven't had a budget for marketing and, you know, dissemination. So it really has been by word of mouth. Um, And even though San Francisco General Hospital has started to use it, I would say some of the UCSF clinics have used it. Our San Francisco VA uses the forms. It really winds up becoming word of mouth. And I do think that one of the reasons it hasn't been used more widely is because we didn't have versions for multiple states. Mm. Um, So we're hoping that now that we do, that won't be a a barrier. Mm -hmm.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it speaks a little bit to the fact that there's just a lot of inertia in Mm -hmm. the healthcare system. And so, even though you've created something that I think almost just about everyone would agree is better. And it's sort of like universal design. I mean, not only is it better for people who might not have, you know, been able to finish high school or, but that everybody finds it easier to read just the way everybody finds other spaces that are universally designed, Mm -hmm. Um, usually more convenient, even though that that design is a necessity for people who might have certain limitations or, Mm -hmm. or, or disabilities, so, yeah, I think there's just an incredible amount of inertia in the system and how even when we have something better, it can take a while before it's widely available and becomes the default for everybody. So you mentioned earlier, you know, some of the studies you've done on Prepare, and I think you're, you're just about to publish another one. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your latest research on Prepare and advanced care planning.
1: So I think, as I said earlier, we had a randomized trial of our easy-to-read advanced directives, and that was really positive. Then we actually did a trial at the San Francisco VA among uh, just veterans, comparing our everybody got something. So one group got the Easy to Read Advanced Directive, and one group got the Prepare website. And that was also both groups. The Easy to Read Advanced Directive and Prepare increased their documentation and the medical record, increased their conversations, but Prepare definitely did. You know, when we look at statistics, statistically significantly more so. And then we're really excited about this study that's just coming out hot off the press where we included nearly a 1,000 English and Spanish-speaking older adults from San Francisco General Hospital who were getting primary care there. And just like the VA trial, one group got just the easy-to-read advance directive and the other group got PREPARE plus the easy-to-read advance directive. And what's super exciting is that we found that 98% of people who reviewed PREPARE and the easy to read advanced directive, they increased their engagement in some form of advanced care planning over 12 months after they you know reviewed the initial intervention. So that means that people were increasing their thinking and talking and documenting their wishes, which was really exciting to us. The advanced directive also did really well. So 89% of people who just got the advanced directive Also, sort of increased some of their engagement in advanced care planning, which is great, but clearly more so with prepare. There were also sort of higher rates of uh, ratings of satisfaction and also helpfulness for prepare more than the static form. And I think one of the other things, you know, people who are listening may not know, but the documentation in the electronic health record is often very low. So people, as you said, maybe they complete this with their lawyers, or they may have something in a back file somewhere, but it's really hard to get this into the medical record. And in this trial, we didn't include clinicians and we didn't include the health system. We gave people these forms and the website and said, you know, hey, it'd be really great if you brought this back to your doctor. And what's great is that 43% of people who were in the prepare arm brought this stuff back to their medical provider and the wishes got documented in the electronic health record. Mm. Um, And for this population, sort of at baseline, the rate was actually eight, eight and a half percent. So Mm. we went from eight and a half percent to 43%, which is for this kind of thing, as you said, it's an inertia thing. It's hard to get going. Is actually pretty impressive. We're very happy about that. Yeah, no, that is fantastic.
0: Because um, I know that that's an issue that comes up regarding advanced care planning in general. And that's part of the impetus for initiatives like National Healthcare Decisions Day is that when they do studies, a lot of people have not seem to have not addressed advanced care planning and that the the rates are not nearly as high as we wish they they were. Do you mm-hmm. have any thoughts on why that is in general? Why We've been struggling these past 10, 20 years to get people to address their advanced care planning, short of them not knowing about the prepare website.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that there are many reasons. I think maybe one reason is that people just don't know how important it is. And I think, you know, Leslie, just like you and I talking here as the geriatrician, when you're on, you know, the other side as a clinician and something happens, we're desperate for any sort of information that patients and their families can provide us about what's really important to the patient. Mm -hmm. So it's really important and it's really important. Studies have shown that people who do advanced care planning for their loved ones that have to make those decisions for them without advanced care planning, people can have increased rates of stress and depression and even post traumatic stress disorder. Right. Um, Yeah. And, we can prevent a lot of that by starting these conversations. So I think if people know that it's really important, that's sort of the first thing. And I think the other thing is that, as you said, maybe you know it's important, but you didn't know that there were these easy to use tools that make it maybe not scary and sort of easy to use. Um, You know, and that's the other thing is that sometimes preparing for medical decisions can be daunting or scary. And hopefully, you know, things like prepare in our video stories where you can see people sort of just like you kind of talking through some of these things and just starting the process, then maybe it can kind of help get people there. I think this also comes back to sort of the normalization of of this, you know, when we think about advanced care planning or medical decision making or being a proxy or medical decision maker for someone else. Nobody likes to think about it because it is scary, but many of us will find ourselves in those situations. And it's sort of the best thing we can do is is try to do some preparation and learn some skills ahead of time. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, I can't help but wonder if it's, you know, not a little bit us getting just tripped up in the, I mean, I think first of all, the psychology studies for people of all ages is that people tend to figure that they'll be lucky and not have some terrible thing happen to them. Mm-hmm. And that it's seen as this terrible thing that you might one day not be able to, to control your healthcare, right? To be there making mm-hmm. decisions mm-hmm. Um, the way you do now and, and that you take that that for granted. And then I've been really interested in the sort of more recent research on cognitive aging and how older adults process emotions mm-hmm. differently. And that part of the reason why people often become more content as they get older is because they just pay less attention to negative things, right? (laughs) which I think is is great for morale, but it also leaves me thinking, wow. (laughs) I mean, so maybe that's why it's particularly uphill for us to be saying, listen, at some point you might not be able to make your decisions because you'll be sick, or I feel like it's always a little awkward to bring up the possibility of dementia because people are so afraid of that possibility, even though it it happens to, I don't know, probably a third of people if you live long enough. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, learning about that, I thought, you know, maybe that's part of why it feels so uphill is that you're really asking people to, to just address something that is really difficult because we're all by nature inclined to not delve into something that feels like an unpleasant possibility or more than unpleasant, right? A really frightening Mm -hmm. possibility. Right. did any of her focus group work shed some insights on how we can help people with that?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I will say, like, I actually, I love the positive spin on things. And I think it's great. You know, I just came back from my grandmother's 100th birthday party. Oh, my gosh. Congratulations to her. It's yeah, amazing. And even though she has many medical problems and has real reasons to have pain, she'll say that her quality of life is a 10 out of 10. And yet my grandmother did her own advanced care planning. (laughs) So I think it's one of those things that like, it, it seems um, normal to us that we would get insurance for our cars and our houses, and we would get insurance for medical care. And these are just sort of normal things that we do, almost that we, we don't want to think about it. We don't want to have to pay for it, but, but they're just sort of part of what we do. And we heard a lot from, from the people who are in our focus groups and interviews that we need to just normalize this. This is mm-hmm. just what we do. Right. It's not some big, scary thing. You don't have to complete a form if you don't want to, you just need to kind of start the process and it's just what we do. So right. I think that that's sort of one of, one of, one of the big things. Right. And then the other thing too, is that people said, well, I might necessarily might not want to think about this for myself, but if I think that it might help one of my family members, then maybe I'll do it. Mm. And it's that generative thing, like, I'm going to be fine, but maybe it'll help my children. Right. I'll um, do and i do it for think, someone else. Yeah. And I think that that framing and some of that framing is actually in some of the prepare videos, because that's what we really heard from a lot of people. That was the impetus is to help to help more the people that they love and care about.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. My other thought about normalizing it too is that if we can somehow make it normal for us to be doing this with, with everybody, I mean, even people my age, I'm in my early forties, you're, you're, you know, you should do it. You don't necessarily need to review it very often if you're generally healthy and don't have something life threatening. But, but I was thinking if at a certain point we made it a habit to do it every five years with mm-hmm. people then maybe it would feel like less worrisome when we brought it up. Because right now I worry a little bit that when we bring it up, people think you must think I'm going to die soon.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And so that maybe if we normalize it, I mean, just like, you know, when I ask people, I do this as part of my practice, you probably do too. But, you know, I ask them a couple of questions about how their memory's going. And I found that it really helped once I started telling everybody, you know, I ask all my patients this <laughs> because mm-hmm. a geriatrician, because I didn't want people to think that I was worried about them in particular. Right. Which often made people kind of anxious or defensive. I wonder a little bit if that might help.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think just as if you say patients, right? People mm-hmm. who are on the patient side, and I consider myself both a clinician and a patient sometimes, but when, you know, you're on the patient side. It's hard to sort of think about this, but I would say that clinicians on the other side have their own, you know, issues or are worried about advanced care planning for themselves and don't necessarily know how to bring this up. So I agree with you. There are some advocates that sort of want to start, you know, much sooner. Like when you think about when children go off to college. Well, I guess they're not children anymore, but when people adults go off to college, mm-hmm. they are asked to write down an emergency contact. That's advanced care planning, right right? When you get yeah. admitted to the hospital and they say whos you know who's your close contact or your emergency contact, that's advanced care planning. That's not scary. that's just something that we do. And so I think again, if we just have it be something that you know is built in to the questions that we ask patients, and like you said, we do this for everyone. It's just sort of what we do. And I, I prepare a lot of my patients who may say be hospitalized or end up in the emergency room. And I'll tell them ahead of time, you know, you're, if you ever go to the hospital, or if you ever go to the emergency room, you will be asked these questions. And it doesn't mean necessarily that something terrible or bad is going to happen, but it it's a standard thing that people do. And I think you're right, Leslie, and we frame it in that it doesn't have to be scary. It's just what we do. Yeah.
0: Another thing I want to make sure we sort of touch on briefly for the audience is
1: that also when we,
0: when we do these planning, that the goal is not to spell out exactly everything that other people should do. Cause I think that's right. another thing that, that sometimes leaves people in a hitch is, well, I don't know exactly what to tell people to do. Whereas, you know, what a lot of your work has, has been about is that the, it's, it's less about spelling out specific things, do this, don't do that, and about sharing values and priorities so that it sort of creates a better foundation for your family and for the involved health providers to to make decisions, because actually it's, it's impossible to plan ahead for every possible decision that your family might have to make on your behalf, right?
1: That is exactly right. And, and I think that we've heard that also from patients when we do these studies, people, that it's not really the treatment like CPR, mechanical ventilation, or surgery. It's not really the treatment that is important. It's the outcome of treatment. Mm -hmm. So what is somebody's life going to be like after that treatment? And people are very different and have very different ideas about what quality of life means. Some people might say that my quality of life is only great if I can run you know, a marathon <laughs> and take care of myself. And other people might say that my quality of life would be great, even if I had to live on machines. Uh-huh. And it's very different for each person. And so it's sort of, um, as you're saying, if we can take a step back and not say, do I want CPR, or do I not want CPR, but what brings my life meaning now? What are some things that might be hard for me to live through or that I've seen other you know, family members or friends go through that, that would be very hard for me? Starting to think about those sorts of things because you're right, Leslie, we can't, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know all the things that may happen to us or all the decisions that we might you know, need to make. And we all didn't go to medical school. So it's hard to know I want this treatment and I don't want that treatment. The thing that we are experts in though, is about us and about the things that are important in our lives and, and what brings our life meaning and value. And I think those are the things that we can think about when we're thinking about advanced care planning. And those are the things that we can share with our loved ones.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. So no, absolutely right. Now we don't have a crystal ball, but we know you and I as doctors, that when people have certain conditions or certain diagnoses, especially if they've had them for a while, we often know what kinds of declines or health crises are likely to come up, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so what I, what I personally often tell people is ask, when you talk about advanced care planning with your health provider, you know, ask them what kinds of things should you, you know might happen in the next year mm-hmm. or two. And, and think about that. And so I was wondering if uh, I noticed that right now in prepare, there's not much specifically about health conditions or, or asking about it, but there are some that, so for instance, people who have advanced uh, lung disease are, mm-hmm. are prone to, to have these crises where they can't breathe, where they might have to be on the breathing machine and they may or may not be able to get off it easily. Or people who have dementia are going to progressively decline in many cases. And so I was just wondering if you could share a few thoughts about how people might want to address advanced care planning, you know, in light of their health conditions or in light of a diagnosis.
1: First, I'll say about PREPARE, I think one of the other pieces of feedback we got from people is that they wanted to see sort of a range of conditions. So, for example, people that had cancer said that they actually wouldn't want a PREPARE that's all about cancer because maybe that would be too scary for -hmm. somebody who had lung disease. They didn't want it to be all about lung disease, that it actually felt a little bit easier to watch if there were a range of conditions. So that's one of the reasons why we sort of set that up that way. But for people who have, you know, specific conditions, I mean, I think one of the things, just to be frankly honest, some people want to know that information and some people don't. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's okay. And I often, when I am about ready to have a prognosis conversation with someone, I first ask if that's information, you know, if I have information about their disease trajectory, is that something that they want to know and would be helpful to them? And it's not helpful to everyone. Mm -hmm. And if they want to have that conversation, I also ask if they'd like to have somebody be with them while we have that conversation, because again, for some people that can be hard to have that conversation and some people don't want to know. And I will sometimes ask them, well, okay, you, you have named, say your daughter to be your decision maker. It's totally fine. If, if that information won't help you, would it be okay if I talked to your daughter to see if that information would be helpful, you know, to to her in case Mm. she needs to make decisions for you. Mm -hmm. And so you know, just to to sort of put that out there, I do think that when people do understand or do know about their disease trajectory, it can help them put their their preferences, values, and goals into a more accurate light. But again, right. I think I think not everyone finds that information helpful for them.
0: Yeah. Well I was thinking, you know, you mentioned earlier that when people have dementia, their family might be making decisions about their healthcare for years. And also I was thinking about, you know, another website about advanced care planning, although they have framed it more as about end of life planning is the conversation project that has Mm -hmm. conversation guides and that they did create one specifically for Alzheimer's and dementia. I imagine that's because they were getting asked for that kind of help. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts, you know, specifically for that condition, because I think when people are first diagnosed, they're just so overwhelmed by the diagnosis and coping with it, that it's really hard to address planning ahead for a time when their care needs might be pretty substantial or might be challenging. Mm -hmm. And so I just see a lot of families floundering Mm -hmm. when their loved one has reached, you know, a stage of moderate to severe Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. and they're facing decisions about medical care, about living situation. And they didn't discuss earlier. So, so I have wondered, you know, since the conversation project did an advance, a a conversation guide specifically for Alzheimer's, whether that's something that you were considering for, for prepare or not.
1: Yeah. I mean, first of all, I will just say that, you know, it's another reason to sort of bring advanced care planning upstream Mm -hmm. because you hope that you can have some of these conversations, like you said, before there's a crisis or before somebody's reeling, you know, with the the diagnosis. Right. I I will say, um, and it's great, Leslie, that you ask about people's memory um, at every visit, which I think is, you know, or or frequently, which I think is important because I think there's an up op- really a real opportunity when things are in the mild to moderate stage and people can still make their own decisions to really sort of step in and try to help with some of this planning. I think that that's really a key period in time. And I would say that I love the conversation project and I love what they've done for the the Alzheimer's and dementia resource. Another resource that your listeners may be interested in is something called a Dementia Specific Advanced Directive. that is, uh, I think it's for free to, to download. It's highlighted in the New York Times, I think about a year ago. Yeah, that was, um, I think he's at the University of Washington.
0: I forget exactly. his, his name, but yeah, no, yeah. I saw that. That's also, I think it's a, I think there's clearly a need. <laughs> well, I think um, what's,
1: what's interesting about those things is they really do focus on, as you were saying, some of the specific disease trajectories of, dementia, the one thing about them for listeners to know about is that they're not legal advanced directives. Right. So they would still be helpful, I think, to patients' families. But one of the things, and it's one of the reasons why we set up our advanced directive the way that we did, so that we could collaborate with folks like this. On our advanced directive, there's a page that says, do you have any other wishes? And people could, you. it's free space for you to write them out. But what it allows people to do is if you complete the conversation guide or if you complete the advanced directive specific uh, or the dementia specific advanced directive, you could just slide that in to your easy to read advanced directive before the signature and it sort of becomes part of that legal document. Right. So I think that that would be helpful for us. We have actually just, uh, we're in the middle actually of doing pilot testing of PREPARE among patients who have mild to moderate cognitive impairment oh, great caregivers for this very thing to sort of, for people who have just been diagnosed with some memory impairment but can still make their decisions, can we help them get to sort of the next stage in advanced care planning? Oh, wonderful. Yeah, that's so necessary. Well, Rebecca,
0: thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk with me. Before we wrap up, do you have any last tips or suggestions for older adults or, or maybe actually, cause I think for older adults, you know, visit prepare the website, but um, <laughs> for uh, I hear sometimes from families who are trying to get their older parents to address this. Any thoughts or suggestions for them?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I would say just globally, my advice would be to just get started. Mm. You know, you don't have to fill out, you know, scary legal forms. You don't have to talk to your doctor if you're not ready but you can just start the process of thinking about these things and maybe starting to have some conversations around the kitchen table. Yeah. Um, so that's my first thing. I do hear a lot from family members who say that my parents won't sort of talk to me about these things. And one of the things, one of the reasons that we set prepare up also with this movie version, Yeah. you can go through prepare and click through and answer questions, but you can also play step one, which is about a surrogate decision maker, like a movie. And I've had people who just sit down with their loved one and just say, "I just want you to watch this movie with me, and then maybe we can talk about it." Mm -hmm. So they play the 10-minute step one video about a surrogate, and it can, you know, start to spark conversations without that person having to feel like I'm filling out a form or I'm answering questions about myself. And it can just be a way to kind of start that conversation.
0: Yeah. No, I love the movie version too. Well, I think that just proves it. You just have an amazing set of resources on the website. So I'm going to post a link in the show notes. It's prepareforyourcare.org. And I want to encourage everybody to to visit and also post some links to some of your your recent uh, research. Rebecca, thank you so very much for joining me today and for taking this on as as your your project. I mean, I just, uh, I love the way you've done not only this fantastic research, but you're just creating these really, practical resources that we can all use. It's been wonderful.
1: Thank you, Leslie. Thanks for
0: having me. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes, and if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show on iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.